down and say, hey, Donald Trump's going to be the nominee if you don't believe he's the right one for our country. And I think it'd be awful for our country. Three criminal indictments don't seem to be hurting Donald Trump's presidential campaign. We'll talk to someone running against him. For Saturday, August 5th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. I had a conversation with Russell Moore about what he wants to fix in the evangelical church. And what was alarming to me is that I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. We've got a lot of music on the show, too. We'll dig into archives of mid-century Texas blues recordings that stayed hidden for decades. And as the 50th anniversary of hip-hop approaches, we'll go back to the Bronx where it all began. Everybody is profiting off of hip-hop but the pioneers. Those of us that really laid the foundation to it. First News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Texas Attorney General's Office is appealing a state court ruling designed to clarify exceptions in the state's abortion bans for pregnancies that endanger a patient's health or life. As NPR's Sarah McCammon reports, the appeal means the state's abortion bans are, once again, fully in effect. In a ruling on Friday, a state judge in Austin sided with 13 Texas women and two doctors who'd filed a lawsuit seeking to clarify medical exceptions in the state's abortion bans. The women say their health was endangered after they were denied abortions under Texas law during medically complex pregnancies. The judge had temporarily blocked enforcement of the laws against doctors who perform abortions based on a good faith judgment that the abortion was medically necessary, including in cases of fatal fetal abnormalities. The Texas Attorney General's office is appealing that injunction to the Texas Supreme Court. In a statement, the AG's office said, Texas pro-life laws are in full effect. This judge's ruling is not. It's not known when or if the Texas Supreme Court will weigh in. Sarah McCammon, NPR News. National security advisors and diplomats from about 40 countries are in Saudi Arabia discussing options for ending Russia's war on Ukraine. NPR's Joanna Kakissis has more. Russia was not invited to the summit, but its ally China says it's sending its envoy for Eurasian affairs to Jeddah. Meanwhile, India, which has remained neutral in this war, says it's also planning to send a representative. Andriy Yermak, who is the top advisor to Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky, told Ukrainian TV he expects the conversation to be difficult but productive. We have many differences, of course, Yermak said, but our task is to unite the whole world around Ukraine. Ukraine says any peace plan must include Russia withdrawing from all occupied territory and a tribunal to prosecute alleged Russian war crimes. Joanna Kakissis, NPR News, Kyiv. Former Pakistani Prime Minister Imran Khan has been arrested again and detained. And Piers Dia Hadid has more. Khan's arrest came after a court found him guilty of concealing details of gifts he took from visiting foreign dignitaries. He's been sentenced to three years prison. This was one of dozens of cases that were filed against Khan since he was ousted from power last year, after his relations with Pakistan's powerful military soured. The military and government have cracked down on Khan's party since then, splintering the group and causing his closest allies to abandon him. Analysts say the judicial pursuit of Khan is to ensure he can't contest Pakistani elections. They're expected in the next few months. Khan's lawyer says they'll file an appeal. Dear Hadid, NPR News. And this latest arrest comes ahead of national elections set to take place later this year. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Sage Therapeutics and Biogen have federal approval for their medication to treat postpartum depression. The Cambridge companies say their drug, Zerzuve, is a fast-acting antidepressant for the disorder that affects up to one in eight women after childbirth. The Food and Drug Administration issued its decision yesterday. The family of Charles Ogletree says a funeral service for the late Harvard Law professor will be planned in the coming weeks. Ogletree died Friday at the age of 70. In 2016, he was disclosed to have been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Massachusetts State Police say they are working to comply with an arbitrator's ruling that orders eight suspended troopers be given their jobs back. The troopers sued after they were disciplined for refusing to get the coronavirus vaccine based on religious grounds. The arbitrator found that state police violated the troopers' rights in not accommodating those beliefs. Well, thousands of cyclists are taking the Pan Mass Challenge to raise money for the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Zoe Epstein of Belmont is halfway through her trek. She left Wellesley this morning and made it to Bourne this afternoon. She says the hills were challenging, but the other riders helped her to keep going. You see the people that are in front of you and on the back of their jerseys, they might have like a ribbon or a piece of paper saying like riding in honor of mom or survivor. So just seeing that, like motivational and inspirational. Well, at the crack of dawn tomorrow, Epstein will take off from Bourne and head to the finish line in Provincetown. The organization's founder says the Pan Mass Challenge is on track to beat the record, $69 million that was raised last year. Partly cloudy skies overnight with lows dropping into the 60s. A sunny day again tomorrow with temps in the mid-80s. And partly sunny Monday, just a slight chance of showers. Highs near 80 degrees. Showers more likely on Tuesday. 81 degrees now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Katina Foundation, supporting the Asylum Seeker Advocacy Project, providing more than 100,000 asylum seekers in the U.S. with community and legal support. Learn more at Asylum.News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. Former President Donald Trump has now been indicted three different times this summer, most recently in Washington, D.C. this week, in a case tied to his attempt to overturn the results of the 2020 election. Trump is running for the White House again and is still considered the clear leader for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. This week, just before Trump's court appearance in Washington, one of his opponents in the primary, former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, told MSNBC that GOP voters have a choice. There's a choice here. Do you support the rule of law and accountability or do you support uh, Donald Trump and support uh, the chaos that he brings and a disregard for the rule of law? So today we called up Hutchinson to talk more about that because so far it looks like Republican voters have made that choice and they have chosen Trump. I asked Hutchinson why he thinks that's the case. Because they perceive that there's been unfairness by the Department of Justice. And it all started with the Durham report that indicated that the investigations by the FBI toward uh, Trump at the beginning were unfair. And then you followed it up more recently with the indictment in New York that both sides of the aisle believe was a stretch. And so, you know, they see foundationally that there's some unfairness. Mm -hmm. And so that overlaps into these more serious indictments now 
that's being brought at the federal level. But that's the reason there's skepticism about it. But you yourself are not skeptical of these last two federal indictments, correct? Well, it's because each case depends upon its own facts. And so I acknowledge that there's been uh, some problems with the Department of Justice in particular cases. And that's why I propose significant and bold reform of our federal law enforcement. But you've got to look at each case and you know, the documents case, obviously, dealing with our national security interest is critical to our country. And then the second one goes to the heart of our democracy, the one that was just brought on the January 6th. And I've always said that uh, Donald Trump was morally responsible for what happened on January 6th. And now he's been charged with uh, criminal conduct in regard to that. But you know, I've got to speak to what I see here as this is important for our system of justice, that we get this right, that it's fair, but that no one is above the law and we hold people who violated the law accountable. It's as simple as that to me. But what, if anything, at this point, given everything you said and given the way that the former president has poisoned the well so much when it comes to framing these criminal cases, what, if anything, do you think could get this majority of Republican voters who who are so skeptical to change their mind about these cases, particularly the January 6th case? Well, it starts in Iowa, and I'm in Iowa today. And while there's skepticism about the indictment, uh, there's also skepticism about uh, whether Donald Trump can lead us to win in 2024. And so as the facts come out, those opinions could change. But regardless, uh, there's a dynamic here in Iowa that we've got to move beyond the chaos of Donald Trump, and we can't win with it. But it's going to take a leadership on people speaking out and being clear and not just jumping in with uh, Trump's defense that somehow he's being persecuted. People have to stand up against that kind of demagoguery. Governor, I hear you, and then I see you and a handful of other candidates. I'm thinking about Will Hurd and Chris Christie being clear and trying to take leadership and going up and speaking about this on stages in Iowa and getting booed. So what's going on here? Well, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously, that's why some some candidates uh, do not jump into this water because they mm-hmm. don't want to get booed. But I've been very well received here in Iowa. I was uh, speaking last night and uh, they like the message. You don't uh, go full bore you know, uh, attacking uh, Trump in this uh, environment, but you have to be honest and straightforward about it. And uh, I'm optimistic that over the course of time, people are going to evaluate the case, but also evaluate the candidates and say we need a new direction. When you look at the big picture headlines about this race, it seems like Trump and his criminal cases and his continued focus on the 2020 results has really like blotted out the sun of what the primary is about. Is that what you're finding when you are campaigning in Iowa and New Hampshire and other early states? What percentage of the one-on-one conversations you're having with voters are about the former president compared to other issues? Actually, that's what's uh, encouraging. That whether I'm in New Hampshire or in Iowa, the, the questions that come up are about the uh, Ukraine. It's about what we're going to do about the federal debt. Uh, It's about uh, the issues of interest. And so they're not dwelling upon Trump. And so it's not hard in the environment with voters talking about the issues that are important to them. 
Now, it's harder with the national media because they're focused on this national story. Mm-hmm. But in the hinterlands of America, it's about the economy. Are you going to make it on the debate stage later this month? I am. We've got a lot of work to do. Uh, go to asa2024.com and help us out. But we're getting closer every day, and uh, we expect to be there. You said that because you need 40,000 individual donors to make the stage. Can you tell us roughly where you are at this point in time? Well, uh, we're <laughs> over halfway there. Uh, we're excited about uh, getting over 10,000 donors in the last uh, two weeks. So we're, we've got an accelerated schedule. We're not there yet. We need everybody's help if you want my voice on the uh, debate stage. So you're talking about Republican voters shifting their view over time from being, you know, lockstep backing the former president. That is another data point that shows that is something they're very hesitant or reluctant or just not interested in doing. What is the timeline that you're thinking is is realistic to, to start to change those minds before the caucusing begins in January? Well, we'll see. Uh, there is a gradual shift. And what everybody uh, is talking about is uh, they're they're keeping their powder dry. Uh, they're waiting for the debate. They want to evaluate the candidates uh, side by side, and they're wide open as to who they're going to support. So the case is there to be made. The debate is an important part of it. The retail politics is an important part of it. And uh, we've got six months before the Iowa caucuses. We're going to make the most of it, and I think you'll see a shift uh, in thinking between now and then. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But that's uh, my hope and belief, and and that's why I'm engaging in the debate. That's former Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson, who's running for president. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. Thank you, Scott. Before I began hosting All Things Considered, I spent a lot of years covering politics, which, as you might imagine, involves a lot of lurking in hallways looking for lawmakers and then chasing them through the halls to get quotes. So I know how elusive politicians can be when they do not want you to find them. And that is why I had to be impressed with what a group of interns in Alaska Senator Lisa Murkowski's office have accomplished. Over the course of the summer, they have managed to track down every single senator, all 100, and taken a selfie with them. Joining me now are two of these interns, Lillian Yang and Claire Moreland. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you for having us. Hi, thank you for having us. Uh, Claire, can you tell me the background here? How, how did this quest get started? Whose idea was it? Yeah, of course. This whole quest began with the June session of interns. And one of our coordinators pitched the idea to them saying, oh, you guys should try to get selfies with all 100 senators. It'd be a very unique way to get to, to know the politicians that actually work in the Capitol. And so the June interns got to 75 senators. And so when we arrived in July, it turned into something that we felt we could actually accomplish. And we were really, really trying to get all of them. And I'm really proud of all of us for managing to get all 100 senators in just about three weeks. So sorry to the June interns, but 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 you all <laughs> beat them. Um, Lillian, how hard was it to get to that final 100? Who was the last elusive senator to get there? Ooh, the last elusive senator was Senator Klobuchar from oh. Minnesota. Uh, we actually, we, we were waiting outside the Senate floor for hours. Um, but eventually, her interns heard about it, and her interns helped us get Senator Klobuchar off the floor to take a picture with us. And um, that was a super awesome moment. I love it. Um, who, who was the most fun to take a picture with? And I have a guess from my years covering the Senate, but uh, I'll, I'll see if I'm right or not. Who, Lillian, who was the most fun to take a picture with for you? 
I think it was definitely Senator Booker. Yep. Uh, it was it was really, really awesome. He grabbed one of our phones and he just took a selfie and we were like, oh, my God. And we couldn't believe that that was happening. Although, Lillian, <laughs> I think you had another favorite senator, didn't you? I had a personal favorite. Um, well, who's the personal favorite? You're teasing it. You got to you got to let us know. Personal favorite was Senator Ossoff. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, what about you? Who was your favorite senator to, to track down and get a picture with? Uh, senator Warren. She was incredibly kind and just very excited. And it was incredible to see her like in person and to realize that, oh, my gosh, these people do exist in a place that is not just television. Who was the who was the most elusive senator to track down? You said Klobuchar was the last one you got, but who was the hardest to find? Mm, I think Senator Cinema. Interesting. We found that, too, as reporters over the last few years. <laughs> that was Lillian Yang and Claire Moreland, uh, two of the eight interns in Senator Lisa Murkowski's office who collected selfies with all 100 senators and, just as importantly, defeated the June session of Murkowski interns in doing that. Thank you. Thank you so much to both of you for, uh, first of all, for being interested in politics in this particular moment, I'll say, and, and, and for talking to us. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you for this awesome opportunity. Tomorrow morning on Weekend Edition, we meet a judge in Guatemala who continues to battle corruption in the Central American nation, despite being the target of death threats and constant harassment for years now. And unlike dozens of her peers who have fled the country, Judge Yasmin Barrios is determined to stay. She says that we Guatemalans have a right to live better. One judge's quest for justice in Guatemala. Listen for that story tomorrow morning. Just ask your smart speaker to play NPR or your member station by name. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Thanks for being here. I'm John Carpilio. Coming up at 6, the Moth Radio Hour. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zoo New England. Boston Lights, presented by National Grid, is back at Franklin Park Zoo. Experience hundreds of amazing lanterns nightly through October 29th. FranklinParkZoo.org. Your inbox is another easy way to follow the news from WBUR each weekday morning. WBUR Today is a quick read on what matters in Boston and beyond. You can subscribe now at WBUR.org slash newsletters. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge. Real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. Partly cloudy skies overnight, lows in the 60s, sunny again tomorrow with temperatures in the mid-80s, 81 degrees in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. The Justice Department has asked a federal judge overseeing the latest criminal case against former President Donald Trump to issue a protective order after he posted a comment online that could appear to promise revenge on anyone who goes after him. Trump's lawyers have until Monday to respond. National security advisors and diplomats from about 40 countries are in Saudi Arabia this weekend discussing options for ending Russia's war on Ukraine peacefully. And Kyiv is also trying to win over countries that have remained neutral during the war. And it's now legal to pump your own gas in Oregon after the governor signed a law ending the 72-year-old ban on self-serve. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News in Washington.
Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of any size to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. For years, Russell Moore was one of the top officials in the Southern Baptist Convention. Then Donald Trump came on the scene. Moore criticized him publicly and found himself ostracized by many other evangelical leaders who embraced Trump. Then Moore criticized the Southern Baptist Convention's response to a sexual abuse crisis, as well as what he viewed as an increased tolerance for white nationalism within the church. And suddenly, Moore found himself resigning from his post and on the outside of a denomination that had up until that point defined his life. My personal faith has become stronger, and I know that's surprising to many people given the uh, given some of the awful things uh, that I've seen. But I've also seen some remarkable signs of life and signs of grace as well. Moore's new book, Losing Our Religion, an Altar Call for Evangelical America, is an attempt at finding a path forward for the religion he loves. When we talked this week, Moore told me why he thinks Christianity is in crisis today in America. Well, it was the result of having uh, multiple pastors tell me essentially the same story about quoting the Sermon on the Mount parenthetically uh, in their preaching, turn the other cheek. Uh, to have someone come up after and say, where did you get those liberal talking points? And what was alarming to me is that in, in most of these scenarios, when the pastor would say, I'm literally quoting Jesus Christ, uh, the response would not be, I apologize. The response would be, yes, but that doesn't work anymore. That's weak. And it, it, when, when we get to the point where the, the teachings of Jesus himself are seen as subversive to us, then we're in a crisis. I mean, how do you even begin to fix that problem, though, when the central message of the gospel is something that a lot of people in the church do not seem to want to fully embrace? I don't think we fix it by fighting a war for the soul of evangelicalism. I really don't think we can fix it at the movement level. And uh, that's, that's one of the reasons why when I'm talking to Christians who are concerned about this, my, my counsel is always small and local. I think we have to do something different and show a different way. And, and I see in history every time that something uh, renewing and reviving has happened, it's happened that way. It's happened at a small level with people simply uh, refusing to go with the stream of the church culture at the time. And I think that's where we need to be now. How much is politics part of the problem here? Are there, are there big issues that have led to these problems that aren't politics, because I think the politics and the culture war aspects of it certainly take up the most attention and certainly play out the most in public. I think that the the roots of the political uh, problem really come down to disconnection, loneliness, sense of uh, alienation, Uh, even in, in churches that are still healthy and functioning. Uh, regular churchgoing is not what it was a generation ago, uh, in which the entire structure of the week was defined by the community. And I think there's a great deal of uh, a great deal of fear that comes from that. 
And then when you look around at legitimate uh, concerns often that, that Christians have about the society around them, but when that's packaged in terms of existential threat, uh, which I don't think is unique to the church right now. I, I think that that almost every sector of American life uh, is is seeing this with what um, Amanda Ripley calls conflict entrepreneurs, people who are willing to come in and say everything is about to be lost and desperate times call for desperate measures. Yeah. To that end, a lot in this book is about what is going wrong. And I wanted to ask you about somebody that you see as, as the right direction. And I noticed that you repeatedly throughout the book return to C.S. Lewis as somebody who has been very important in your own life, very important in personal crises of faith that you faced. And, and one of the things that you mention right away is his welcome and encouraging tone yeah. in his writing. What was it about his words that helped you so much? I think what helped me as a as a 15-year-old, I was looking around at Bible Belt uh, Christianity and wondering, is this all really just politics uh, or social control or something else, some means to an end? And because I had read the Chronicles of Narnia so many times as a young child, I recognized Lewis's name and on the spine of the book and was able to read it. What struck me was the fact that he very clearly wasn't trying to market to me or to mobilize me for anything. He was simply bearing witness to what he had uh, seen and what he knew to be true. And I, I really think that often in, in the history of the church, the people who can do that are people who seem to come out of nowhere. Uh, Lewis was an atheist uh, literature professor, very antagonistic to Christianity until he became a Christian. We've seen that so often. So I, I often tell people when they ask, well, who's the next Billy Graham? Uh, the next Billy Graham may not even be a Christian yet and, and might, as a matter of fact, be a person very hostile to Christianity. We've seen that before. I think you, you refer to, to your personal situation as almost accidental exile at, a, at, at points in, in the book. Yeah. Are you glad that happened? I, I am not someone who uh, thinks of myself as a dissenter, and yeah. I, I don't like the role of dissenter. I, I like uh, belonging. I love my community. Um, and, and so it's a very unnatural uh, sense of, of exile for me. But one of the things I've noticed is that since since I've gone through that, I've talked to thousands of people who have experienced a very similar thing. They, they feel homeless. Uh, they feel as though there's not one particular niche into which they uh, fit in all of these warring tribes in American life right now. And again, I think that can be a good thing. That's not just an evangelical problem though, right? No. I feel like cultural tribalism and political us versus them over everything else is is a defining part of American life right now. Mm -hmm. Do you think, and there's a lot to talk about when it comes to that, but do you think there is any hope for the changes you want to see in the evangelical church if this all or nothing political cultural warfare moment continues across the country beyond its community? Well, I don't think the all-or-nothing cultural warfare is sustainable. Uh, I, I, I think really, a lot of people agree with you on that, and yet here we are. Yeah, we, we are here, but, but I really do think that it's not sustainable in terms of um, there's a, a passage in the Scripture that says, uh, beware if you uh, bite and scratch at one another that you do not devour one another. 
And I think in American life right now, we're starting to realize we're, we're devouring one another. Yeah. And yeah, you're right. Every, almost every part of American life is uh, tribalized and, and factionalized, but it shouldn't be that way in the church. The, the very existence of the church is to mean a group of people who are reconciled uh, to God and to each other. And, and from the very beginning, uh, was standing apart from those sorts of uh, those sorts of factions, and so I think I think if we're going to get past the blood and soil sorts of uh, nationalism or uh, all of the other uh, kinds of uh, kinds of totalizing cultural identities, it's it's going to require rethinking what the church is, and I don't think that's something new. I think it's very old. I think it's recovering a a first century. Uh, understanding of what it means to be the church. Russell Moore, his new book is Losing Our Religion, an altar call for evangelical America. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hip-hop has a big birthday next week. Nearly 50 years ago, on August 11th, 1973, some teenagers threw a back-to-school party in the rec room of their apartment building in the Bronx. And presiding over it all was DJ Cool Herc. Since then, hip-hop has evolved and it has exploded. It is impossible now to imagine the world today without this music and its culture. So next week, All Things Considered is exploring five key moments that helped define hip-hop, starting with that party that many call the birth of hip-hop. My co-host Juana Summers joins me now. Hey, Juana. Hey there. So what made you want to mark hip-hop's 50th birthday? Well, I mean, first of all, can you believe it has only been 50 years since the date that we credit for the birth of hip-hop? I mean... Hip-hop is everywhere right now. It impacts every element of our culture, from sports to fashion, everything we do, really. It's a huge business. So, first of all, I just thought marking that was incredibly significant. And we also just wanted to look back and talk to some of the people who were influential in its rise, who maybe don't always get their say, and others who have built their careers on documenting it. I feel like 50 years is one of those milestones that feels like a very long time. But when you stop and think about it, it's actually not that long. No. And you have talked to a lot of the key people who were there in that moment. You've visited many of the key places like this apartment building that's still there that you can still go into. Let's talk about that party for a minute. What made what Cool Herc was doing so different? And why does that moment get credit for the birth of it all? Well, I mean, like any DJ, DJ Cool Herc prided himself on the tunes he selected and the size and the power of his sound system, which back in his day, he was often setting up outdoors, literally plugging into city lights to get power to power up his sound system. But Cool Herc also noticed that dancers who were at these parties that he was DJing, they loved the parts of the records where the vocals dropped out and you just had the percussive breakdowns or the breaks. So he developed this technique where he'd play the break from one record, then play just the break from another record on his other turntable. And then he'd queue up another break on his first turntable. I mean, you get the point. This goes on and on and on. And he was really known as something of an innovator. He also figured out how to use his two turntables simultaneously to loop a single break with two copies of the same record. I mean, Scott, you can almost think of this as like a predecessor to sampling, though back in Cool Herc's day, it let the dancers just get crazy for a long time. Mm -hmm. And he and his friends could get on the mic over these beats and make announcements like stage bander, these funny little rhymes and link them up. 
I mean, you can kind of imagine what this might sound like. Yeah. I actually got a chance to talk with DJ Cool Herc over the phone earlier this year. He was 18 the day of that infamous party, but he's 68 years old now, and he called that technique the merry-go-round. The best for the records, I went to it. I go right to the yoke. As you reported this, as you reported the other stories in the series, what surprised you? I mean, this is a project we've worked on for the last five months, and I think the thing that stuck with me the most is that some of the early voices and names that were involved in the earliest days of hip hop story, they didn't profit in the same ways that today the megawatt artists who are all household names in hip hop did. I mean, we met someone named MC Debbie D. She went out on her own as a solo female rapper in the 80s. And she told us at the time, nobody was thinking about this music they were creating as lucrative. People didn't see it as a viable career. Now, we should say that has obviously changed, but it's left some of these original pioneers with some bittersweet feelings about it all. I think it's great. I mean, people have to get a living any way that they can get a living. The only issue that I have with it is that everybody is profiting off of hip-hop but the pioneers, those of us that really laid the foundation to it. So, I mean, one thing that I've really kept in mind is the fact that this whole genre, this whole culture, really, it was born out of kids who were teenagers like Debbie D living in New York City, often in poor neighborhoods, who were going out to these block parties where somebody was DJing often outdoors for not a lot of money. That mm-hmm. initial party, I think, was 25 cents for girls and 50 cents for boys that Cool Herc was the DJ at. And Hip-hop was really born out of the spirit of resourcefulness and youth who were really playing the hands that they were dealt and ended up making a beautiful music and culture out of it that still reverberates through our culture today. All right, Juana Summers, thank you so much. Thanks, Scott. And you can hear Juana's reporting on hip-hop's big anniversary all of next week. You can also check your local member station for Hip Hop 50, an NPR special. To find your member station, go to npr.org slash station. listening to NPR News. The Women's World Cup soccer tournament began its knockout stage today. Spain eliminated Switzerland with a decisive 5-1 victory. And in a matchup of two one-time champions, Japan beat Norway 3-1 to advance to the quarterfinals. Tonight, the Netherlands is taking on South Africa as the round of 16 continues. And tomorrow morning at 5 a.m. Eastern, the United States faces off against Sweden. It's winner-go-home time for a U.S. team that has struggled more than usual at this surprise-filled tournament. A win against the Swedes, though, could turn things around nicely. We will have the latest on the American quest for an unprecedented World Cup three-peat right here on the show tomorrow. Of the few thousand people who try to hike the Appalachian Trail from Georgia all the way to Maine each year, only about a quarter finish. So getting to the halfway point in Pennsylvania is a big deal. 
Rachel McDevitt from member station WITF takes us to the midpoint where hikers celebrate by eating a half gallon of ice cream. Game on. <laughs> Hikers are getting hyped up at the Pine Grove Furnace General Store, waiting for a fresh delivery of ice cream. So when it comes... Got to look at the ice cream. Look at it come by. You are the man. I'm going to hold the door for you. Hold on. The delivery man is basically a celebrity. Inside the store, hikers jostle around the freezers. Alan Dwyer, who goes by Lego Man on the trail, is wearing a camo bucket hat and a black kilt. He double takes when he hears the record for the half gallon challenge three minutes and 37 seconds. I'll do the challenge, but I'm not killing myself. Outside on the porch, Dwyer digs in. He's hiked 1,100 miles to get here, so this is a big moment. Absolutely. Probably more the the symbolism than the ice cream, to be honest. Yvette Fernia, a dark-haired woman with bright freckles whose trail name is Milkweed, is mixing up an improvised <laughs> orange creamsicle. You gotta have a good flavor combo because it is just an exorbitant amount of food in one sitting to even attempt. Neil Happy Feet Postal, a wiry 24-year-old, is already nearing success, but feeling the effects. Um, I felt better, honestly. I was feeling pretty ill after the first one and a half quarts, uh, but I just kind of sat down and smoked a couple cigarettes and I felt fine. It's a uh, warm day and Dwyer's bushy brown beard is dripping with cream. The maple walnut flavor reminds him of growing up in New Hampshire. One of my wonderful childhood memories is getting sap from trees. Young me would order maple walnut. walnut. Oh, no. My spoon just broke in half. There's no video of this. He pauses, then grips his new, smaller spoon. Uh, I will persist. Um. Each hiker has their own motivation for this trek. For Fernia, it's about setting an example for her eight-year-old son. And I think the biggest thing I always got from adults as a kid was not what they would tell you, but the things that you saw them do. So the things that you saw them do that, that seemed extraordinary, like they were superheroes. Like, I'd want him to be proud of me. I want to be proud of me. Dwyer has been writing Hike the Appalachian Trail on his list of personal goals every year for the last 14. He says the hike is shifting his perception of what he really needs. Already this far, I wish I had taken more pictures of people and less pictures of the views. One of the trail tautologies is the views will always be there, the people won't, so take more pictures of people. A thousand miles lies between this ice cream in Pennsylvania and the end of the trail in Maine. But for now, there's no rush. This moment is for the hikers, not the hike. For NPR News, I'm Rachel McDevitt at the midpoint of the Appalachian Trail. This is NPR News. Thanks for listening to 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Coming up next at 6 o'clock, the Moth Radio Hour. And in the first hour, occasional magic. That's The Moth, coming up next at 6. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Mayor's Office of Arts and Culture with Goldfest, a celebration of the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, August 12th, boston.gov slash goldfestival. Join us at City Space this coming Monday for a conversation about ice cream with local makers. And come ready for a Sunday as City Space becomes an ice cream parlor for one night. Tickets at wbur.org slash events. Partly cloudy overnight with lows in the 60s, sunny tomorrow, mid-80s, 
Partly sunny Monday, just the chance of a shower. Highs on Monday in the 80s. Right now, 81 degrees in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Texas, the state attorney general's office is appealing a state court ruling designed to clarify exceptions in Texas's abortion bans for pregnancies that endanger a patient's health or life. And that means the state's abortion bans are once again fully in effect. In Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan was arrested today after a court handed him a three-year jail sentence for corruption in an asset concealment case. It's the second time the popular opposition leader has been detained this year, and it could prevent him from running again. And Denmark reclaimed their world title in men's team pursuit as they defeated Olympic champions in Italy at the final UCI World Cycling Championships in Scotland today. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. One of the greatest living Uyghur poets lives in Washington, D.C. Tahir Hamut Izgil escaped from his native Xinjiang to the U.S. in 2018. At the time, rights groups say the Chinese government was detaining hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs and imprisoning writers that Izgil worked with. His new book about this experience is called Waiting to be Arrested at Night. NPR's Emily Fang talked to the author about it. To remember is important, but for those who remember, like to hear Hamut Izgil, the memories are a painful responsibility. I myself don't like to reread my own book. Every time I read part of it, I feel like I'm going through those events again. He's talking about his new memoir. The Book of Prose is a departure for the celebrated Uyghur poet and filmmaker. In truth, a book like this should never have had to be written. These events shouldn't have happened. But this oppression and injustice had occurred. I had a responsibility to record what happened. A responsibility because Izgil is one of the few Uyghur artists and intellectuals out of China and free to speak about the mass detention and cultural erasure of his people. Izgil made his career as a film director in the early 2000s when a brief and vibrant cultural scene exploded in Xinjiang. We spent a lot of time together uh, at uh, Ultrush. Ultrush is just kind of a in Uyghur, it's sort of a dinner party, usually with drinks that goes very late into the night. This is Joshua Freeman, the translator of Eskil's book. Freeman is a Uyghur language expert and historian now at Taipei's Academia Sinica Research Institute. He met Eskil while living in Xinjiang. He explains how poetry is woven through everyday Uyghur life. A lot of Uyghur public discourse happens through poetry. Most Uyghurs are familiar with quite a bit of poetry. And even in conversation, people will sometimes use little bits of poetry, sort of idioms um, that rhyme or align from a poem that moved them. 
In 2015, Izgil was filming a television series outside the southern Uyghur city of Kashgar, very close to where Izgil had been imprisoned in a Chinese labor camp two decades earlier. Along the side of the road, I saw a newer prison, and my traveling companions explained that this was a woman's prison. Shaken, Izgil wrote this poem, entitled Kashgar Women's Prison, about the memory. The body of land was in pieces. The roads were stitching them together. Cold air was leading its kin down from the mountain. A sudden shiver went through me. Then, starting in 2017, the Chinese state put at least hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs into internment camps, which the Chinese state said were designed to re-educate Uyghurs to become more patriotic Mandarin Chinese-speaking citizens. Sadly, many of my closest friends hadn't had the opportunity to. And in writing my book, to some degree, I felt that I'm trying to speak on their behalf as well. Against all odds, Izgil and his family overcame a ban on Uyghurs getting passports and traveled to the U.S. on the pretext of seeking medical treatment in 2017. This was a chance at a new life, but at the cost of leaving their homeland and the people they loved behind. It was very hard to write poetry when I first came to the U.S. He did write this poem called Somewhere Else after arriving in the U.S. that is also included in his new book. What is it, from far away, from behind the domed water, that stayed with me, that came along with me? A weak vow written in the yellowing fog, audacity standing at an angle, or the layered dimness passed from hand to hand. This is a poem of longing for my loved ones and my friends and everybody I left behind. And, he says, the poem is about the longing he has for his homeland in exile. Emily Fang, NPR News, Taipei. For decades, one of the most legendary private collections of early blues music was just that, private. Now, it's available for everyone's ears. This is a collection that was just, it was known as the monster. That's blues musician Dom Flemons. You know, you always hear that for each musician that recorded, there were, you know, dozens if not hundreds that didn't record. This is the first time that you're seeing an archive that proves this point. The archive is a collection of 590 reels of sound recordings and 165 boxes of manuscripts, interviews, notes, photos, playbills, and posters, all of it collected by a man named Mac McCormick, a blues researcher and ethnographer who spent years zigzagging through Texas and the American South in search of great artists to record. People like um, Joel Hopkins, who was Lightning Hopkins' brother. There's some amazing recordings of him. I send you my home, my clothes. And then there's also another fellow, a Bongo Joe, or George Coleman, who was a um, a very eccentric. Uh, he called himself the original rapper. You vote for me. We have a more white house. We have a black house. <laughs> that's what's something that uh, makes this archive so worthwhile. Is it just opens up a whole new world. A whole new world that's now accessible to everyone. Well, a sampling of it, at least, on a new box set from Smithsonian Folkways called Playing for the Man at the Door. 
field recordings from the collection of Mac McCormick, 1958-1971. Flemons wrote an essay for the album, and John Troutman of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History helped produce it. I asked Troutman how Mac McCormick was able to find and record all of these incredible artists. You know, Mac documented everything. And his archive, the monster, as as Dom referred to it, because everyone did, especially Mac, um, is is filled with thousands of of pages of interview notes and um, comments to himself about his process and his collecting, and and often. Um, in some cases, when he was officially working as a census taker or as a cab driver, would just begin to um, knock on doors. And um, this was a really m- remarkable and challenging um, interaction because um, he was visiting um, these segregated neighborhoods and people in these neighborhoods. And that interaction is filled with power dynamics. And yeah. in, the, in the 1960s, you know, at the height of the tensions around that period of the civil rights movement, um, for a white stranger to knock on um, black folks' doors um, was a moment that could be filled with a great deal of tension. And not just a white stranger, sometimes in his role as a census taker, a white stranger in the role of, of a federal official, somebody with some power. Exactly. And so it really um, created um, a circumstance where he was uh, creating a, a vulnerability, essentially, by knocking on their doors in, a, in an official capacity, to your point. And then the folks who were answering the doors had to make decisions, you know, and, and at this time in particular, they did not have the backing of law enforcement when strangers were coming around um, and they needed to be vigilant. And in many cases, people came up with, with, excuses to just to get rid of this guy as quickly as they could. And he talks about, he writes about that in his notes. Um, But he also really recognized exactly um, this dynamic. I mean, he understood it. He often um, spoke of his repulsion for these Jim Crow protocols that were mapping out the landscape of of what he called greater Texas, Texas and Louisiana and Arkansas, where he was primarily working at this time. And um, also had a great deal of respect um, during this period for these musicians. He, he knew of them and knew as much about them as he could before he knocked on their doors. And in many cases, folks gave him a chance and let him in. Dom, what do you make of all, all the layers that, that, that go into the way that, that Mac McCormick assembled all these recordings? Well, you know, you have to think about it. And I tell people this all the time that very rare is the moment when you just put a microphone in front of somebody and you can get amazing folkloric information and cultural information uh, from them. You know, I, I have to say, I, I have to tip my hat to him for going out to the neighborhoods and taking the time to find the music from the people. And it's it's something that um, not everybody would do. Not everybody would have the uh, the gumption or the or the know-how to get to all these neighborhoods and also think of going through census records and taking forensic evidence to try to find musicians that up to that point are only relegated to a piece of shellac. Yeah. You both mentioned that this was this legendary collection that, that loomed over, over the folklore scene, over the, over the blues scene. You knew it was out there, but not many people had heard it. I'm wondering if you could pick out one of the musicians that we hear from in this collection and why it was so exciting to hear this person and hear this music. 
Well, one of the musicians that I found to be so exciting to hear were, was this, one of the songsters that was so well known, a fellow by the name of Mance Lipscomb. And while there are many recordings of Mance Lipscomb out there, one of the songs that really just sort of moved me was hearing a recording of the song So Different Blues. And after playing the song on these recordings on the box set, he plays the song and then you hear Mac talk to Mance a little bit afterward and Mance says that no, nobody's ever heard this song before and you're the first guy to ever hear this song. I'd never recorded it. How long ago did you write that? Oh, I've been had that oh maybe five years ago. Five. Nobody haven't got it, I think, on, on the recording yet. Really? And nobody got it on the recording. I'm glad we got it. That's the best <laughs> thing I've ever heard you do. It's a lot of work in it. So you take a song that uh, Manch would become a little bit more well-known for during the folk revival, and this is the first moment when there's someone that puts a microphone in front of this man and, and collects the song so that it could be saved for posterity. I, I want to ask about the, the one other big complicated aspect of, of all of this here, and that's the fact that for so many years, McCormick kept these recordings to himself. Do you think McCormick owed it to the musicians he recorded to, to make some of this public earlier, or do you think once he had that recording, it was, it was his right to keep it to himself if he wanted to? Well, the thing you have to think about is that Mac McCormick has to, he collected all of this material in a very linear fashion based on the experiences he was having. So I don't know what he thought about each of the individual recordings or if he felt an obligation to have to release all of them. We do know that he had a very high standard in which he kept his materials under wraps. I don't necessarily think he had an obligation because he as an individual, went out there, recorded it, and, and it was his right to do whatever he pleased with the recordings. But I think that now that, that it's out of his hands, we can now interpret the recordings and, and release them and, and use them for documentation's sake. And I think that that's something that, um, I don't think that's something that Mac could have done by himself. I think that's right. And in terms of him doing it by himself, that <clears throat> ended up being one of his great challenges in life. Mac had great ambition um, to to write about these um, encounters, these musical encounters with um, these extraordinary musicians that he was meeting. He had great ambition to release recordings as well, and he released several. He had a you know very short lived label called Almanac Records, um, but um, Mac also lived with uh, depression and paranoia. Um, they seem to be clearly manifestations of a bipolar disorder, and um, that uh, evidence of of um, that that aspect of his life is is found throughout the archive. And um, in some cases, it was a great challenge for him um, to pursue these uh, these releases and to pursue his writing. You know, pursue the publication of his writings as well. A lot and, of big, ambitious writing projects that he just never quite got to the finish line. The archive is filled with them. Um, really extraordinary writings. Um, and you know, to his daughter Susanna Nix's credit, she always saw the value of of this archive. She recognized the value um, of these recordings, and it was her ambition through donating. Um, his archive to the Smithsonian 
um, that they would begin to see the light of day and that the public would gain access to the archive um, and to the recordings. John, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a challenge to end this interview. I think there's there's sixty something songs in this collection, right? There's probably thousands of thousands of songs overall that that you have been spending the last two years digging through and thinking about. Can you pick one for us to end the segment on and to listen to and 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 tell us why it jumps out to your head? That is hard. <laughs> <laughs> Take your time to think about it. <laughs> you know, I, I think I, I would love to end on a song with Buster Pickens. a barrel house pianist from the you know who had performed regularly in the early 20th century on the Santa Fe circuit which would kind of was a, one of many train lines in Texas and he performed for laborers working on um, the trains and the tracks and then others who were kind of working in the neighborhoods that those trains would, would travel through and um, his music is so raucous and, and beautiful on the piano, and, and he spent hours and hours with Mac, um, sharing stories with him and recording. And he's he, you know, at one time Mac captured uh, some recordings um, at Buster's place with um, his friend Leroy Country Johnson on guitar, um, and they played a song called "Train Roll Up," which really conveys just this rollicking world. That's John Trotman of the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History and a producer of the new album, Playing for the Man at the Door, field recordings from the collection of Mac McCormick, 1958-1971. We've also been speaking to blues musician Dom Flemons, who contributed an essay to the collection. Thanks to both of you. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it.